0: You don't need special gadgets to be a hero. With unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere, the Capital One Quicksilver card makes you the hero of every purchase. Whether it's headphones, a lounge chair, or even a well-deserved massage. Whatever the Quicksilver purchase, you're the hero. No fighting bad guys, getting in epic car chases, or parachuting out of buildings required. Simple, isn't it? The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Toyota, let's go places.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bright, and Jerry's over there, and we're cubing it up with Rubik the Cube. (laughs) Did you see um, that cartoon, Rubik the Amazing Cube? Did you come across that? No. Okay. I I feel like we are um, well within our rights as far as fair use goes, since we are talking about this, to at least play the highly disturbing but also strangely cute voice of Rubik, the amazing cube. Can I play this real quick? Sure. Okay. My name is Rubik. That is it. Wow. And it is awfully unusual, especially when you see this cube. They just basically took a—do you remember the goblin face on Maximum Overdrive on, that, on the front of that semi? Mm, sort of. It's kind of like a cuter version of that that they put onto a Rubik's Cube, put some feet on it, and then gave it superpowers. That's Rubik the Amazing Cube. Wow. Uh, before we go any further, Chuck, I just want to give a shout-out for my um, Chicago show. May I? Yes. I'm doing a solo end-of-the-world live show in Chicago on September 12th at Lincoln Hall. And if you want tickets, go to lh-st.com. Okay? Okay. So back to Rubik, Chuck.
0: Yeah. It it was kind of hard to believe that it took until 2014 for this thing to be uh, granted National Toy Hall of Fame inductee status. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like it would have been much sooner than that because uh, they have sold— hundreds and hundreds of millions of Rubik's Cube since 1980. I had one. I still have one. I could do it at one point. Oh, really? Yeah, I could do it in a couple of minutes.
2: Wow, Chuck, I'm impressed. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, I can still do I can still do one side and, like, the top row surrounding that side on all sides. And that's where I completely forget.
2: Oh, I see. So you couldn't do it in a couple of minutes now. You just have, you could in the past?
0: Yeah, when I was nine.
2: Okay, well, um, I'm impressed. I've never been able to solve a Rubik's Cube. I've never been sucked in enough to, um, like, really spend a significant amount of time. But um, I I was playing with my um, niece's Rubik's Cube the other day. Yeah. Studying for this. And, um... I was like, yeah, I could see how somebody would become obsessed with this kind of thing for sure.
0: Yeah, it was fun. And it was, you know, to call it all the rage is an understatement. It was one of the most popular toys of all time. Invented in 1974 by a math enthusiast in Hungary, an architect, a -hmm. professor named Erno Rubik. Appropriately enough. They named him after the cube. That's right. And if you don't know what we're talking about... (laughs) It seems weird to describe a Rubik's Cube, but we'll probably be taken to task if we do not. Uh, I would say just uh, come out from under the rock that you've been living under. But we may have some young listeners who don't even know what this thing is, uh, this piece of 80s ephemera, even though it's not ephemera because they're still pretty popular. Yeah. But it is a cube made up of 26 little mini-cubes called Cubies, which is Mm -hmm. kind of a cute little name. I think so, too. Not as cute as Rubik the Amazing Cube, but yeah little cubies and they are in a three inch by three inch by three inch uh well that's not quite true a three by three by three grid right uh eventually creating a cube that measures uh, 2.25 inches or 5.7 centimeters per side right and so what there's six six cube faces because it's a cube
2: and each face has a different color there's orange blue green yellow white and red and um when you, when you mix these things up, it's a, just a jumble, a riot of different colors like you've never seen in your life. But the point is to move these cubies around through the 18 different ways you can move any given cube um, so that all of the colors are lined up. All the colored cubies are all the same on each face. And it sounds easy. Friends, it is not easy. Not at all. Like, maybe for some people it's easy, but for the rest of us normal folk, us normies, it is not easy in any way, shape, or form.
0: No, it is not. Uh, And in fact, they even suggest that you read about how to solve the Rubik's Cube. It is the very rare individual that can literally just figure it out without any help at all. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really tough to do. So it's not like you're not a cheat if you look at, like, how to solve the Rubik's Cube and then memorize these patterns and practice them that's sort of the point
2: right yeah like go look it up like it's fine no one will, will get mad at you for that
0: yeah because it's no fun to never solve a
2: puzzle well that's why i think i've never gotten sucked in i was like i'm not even there's no way i'm, I'm gonna possibly stumble across this and i just don't think like this my spatial reasoning is yeah. terrible i'm not great at math i'm colorblind everything just looks white um, it's not the toy for you no, it's really not. I can't discern squares from, from circles. It's just, I'm off. <laughs> so, um, originally, the Rubik's Cube was called the magic cube. And it was invented, like you said, by Erno Rubik, who is Hungarian. So, it was originally called the beavish Kotska, which is uh, magic cube in the Hungarian. And kotzka means butthead, I believe. It does. The magic butthead is so what it was originally called. The beavish and butthead. <laughs> oh, Right nice, man. It's like, where's he going with this? After all these years, still, I, I, still it's didn't get great. One. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I was like, I'm, I'm going
0: with this. We'll uh-huh. go with
2: this. It's Chuck. I trust him. <laughs> and it paid off, too.
0: So Mr. Uh, Rubik got the, his Hungarian patent uh, on the mechanical design of this in 1977. And it was in Hungary only for a while. Uh, and it did pretty well in Hungary. Um, but that's kind of where it stayed. It was uh, it was because of the politics of the time and the fact that it was Hungary. It was not super easy to get a uh, an American patent or to bring it over and market it here in the West. So it was pretty much a Hungarian local sensation for its early, like, probably first year.
2: Yeah. He had, like, a, a Hungarian toy manufacturer make, like, 10,000 of them. But he wasn't happy with them, so he cut the runoff At five thousand, so there were five thousand of these things floating around Budapest and and maybe Hungary in general, and it was just total serendipity that there was a guy named Tibor Laxi, and I'm quite sure that's not exactly how you say his last name, but that's that's how it's how it's spelled. It's probably like Lucia or something like that. <laughs> but um, Tibor, I am i just love that name. It's a great name. Um, he was an entrepreneur who had uh, left Hungary and moved to Austria, so he had really developed a taste for capitalism. Well, he happened to be visiting back home in Budapest when he was at a restaurant, and he noticed a waiter playing with the beavish kotzka, the magic cube. And um, he said, you there, what is that? And uh, he said, well, it's the beavish kotzka, how about I sell it to you for a dollar? And I believe he bought that for a dollar, played around with it for a minute, and was like, this could be big. So he found out who invented it, and he scheduled a meeting with Erno Rubik.
0: Yeah, and he would say later on uh, that he that Erno Rubik had a lot to do with why he decided to get into business with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's his quote. He said, when Rubik first walked into the room, I felt like giving him some money. He looked like a beggar. He was terribly dressed. Now, you got to remember, this guy's a professor, so... They're not known for their sharp attire. Right, Uh, He was terribly dressed, and he had a cheap Hungarian cigarette hanging out of his mouth. But I knew I had a genius on my hands, and I told him we could sell millions. Yeah. And he was right.
2: Oh, man, was he ever right. He understated it, actually. Um, The uh, Tibor, I'm just going to call him Tibor, he took this uh, magic cube, and he started going to toy fairs. Uh, and I think he struck out at a few of them, but he really hit it out of the park at the Nuremberg Toy Fair when he met a toy expert who uh, had connections with Ideal Toy Company. You remember Ideal back in the day? Uh, I I think I do, for sure. I'm pretty sure they made that, um, the, uh, the, uh, oh, what was the Daredevil's name? Evil Knievel.
0: I think they made the Evil Knievel stunt bike. You know, what's funny is, um, They make those now for other, uh, they have, there's like an Incredibles stunt bike with uh, Plastic Girl. Oh, really? And it's the same exact function. We have one in our house and you load it up and crank it and there she goes.
2: Is it the exact same mold? They just put like different paint on it or something like that? (laughs) Because I love knockoff
0: toys, man. It's slightly different uh, in its design, but it's clearly like the same exact toy.
2: Do you remember that gallery of knockoff toys I made back when we used to blog? Those were great. I think it's still up somewhere on our Stuff You Should Know Some. Remember how
0: excited we would get about
2: gallery page views? Yeah. Oh, we'd be like, holy (laughs) cow, we're up to 70. And it's only been up for a week and a half. So funny. So at the Nuremberg Toy Fair, uh, Tibor runs into uh, the guy from Ideal and they end up purchasing it. They purchase the the rights to this, the global rights, and they 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 basically sign up to create a million Rubik's cubes.
0: Yeah. Also, we should say at this Toy Fair, he he did a pretty smart thing. Instead of like mm-hmm. buying a booth, mm-hmm. he just came and worked the floor with Rubik's cubes. Yeah. And got this like ground buzz going by walking around and giving these things to people, and like that's genius. Like for something like this, that's the perfect way. To pique someone's curiosity is not to have some flashy, uh, like, spinning giant Rubik's cube, is to actually get it in the hands of people walking around the floor.
2: Right. Especially if you say, I'm
0: Tibor, let's party. <laughs> should, a, I bet he wanted to call it Tibor's Cube. It's a pretty good name. He probably did.
2: Although he was smart, because remember, originally it was called the, um, the Magic Cube. At some point, if it wasn't Tibor, it was Ideal, who said, we're going to rename
0: this the Rubik's Cube. And I'm sure Erno Rubik was like, oh, well, okay, I guess if you insist. I wonder if he was into it or not, or if he pushed for it, or if he was like, I'm not really into that, but if you think it'll sell cubes. That's what I'm guessing he probably did. I don't think he was going to
2: stand in the way of it, but he was not, like, vying for it by any means.
0: That's my impression, but I'm just totally making that up.
2: But I have the same impression, which means
0: that if you put our
2: two impressions together, it equals fact.
0: (laughs) 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 So Ideal sells... 100 million Rubik's Cubes in the first two years, in 1980 and 81. They just signed up to sell 1 million. They sold
2: 100 million in two years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they had problems keeping up with production. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the accolades in 80 and 81, it won the UK's Toy of the Year Award, two years running. Um, In 82, there were five books about solving it on the New York Times bestseller list, one of which I owned. I owned uh, the classic... The Simple Solution to the Rubik's Cube by James G. Norse. Cute. He was a chemistry student at Stanford. And get this, dude. This book was the number one best-selling book of 1981, period. Oh, my God. He sold 6.7 <laughs> million books, and it is still the fastest-selling book in the history of Bantam books. Is that right? Can you believe that? Out of all the books that year, that was the number one.
2: I can because that really kind of underscores just how nuts, the not just America, the world went for Rubik's Cube. That the number one selling book was a book about solving the
0: toy. That, that, that was it. Yeah, they had sold 500 million of them by the time 1986 rolled around. So, so talking about the books, though, for another second, at one point,
2: the number one, two, and four positions on the New York Times bestseller list were all Rubik's Cube solution books. Three was probably Stephen King or something. Probably. And uh, one of those books was written by a 12-year-old named Patrick Bossert called You Can Do the Cube,
0: <laughs> which is pretty adorable if you think about it. And Christian Slater made a movie called Gleaming the Cube. One of my all-time favorites. <laughs> which had nothing to do with Rubik's Cubes, as it turns out.
2: No, it's about skateboarding. That's right. Um, so there's a, a just a, a craze going on around the world. Like everyone is into the Rubik's Cube. Everyone's buying one. They sold, like, I've seen anywhere from 350 million. The highest I've seen is 600 million. They sold a ton of these things, hundreds and hundreds of millions of them around the world. Those were the official
0: world. ones, too. There were plenty of knockoffs.
2: Sure. There was. Books on the New York Times bestseller list about this. It was featured in Time, Scientific American, New Scientist. Um, There was a paper that was printed in the New England Journal of Medicine that talked about cubist's thumb, which is a real thing. It's a type of tendonitis in your thumb that you get in your non-dominant hand because that's— the hand that you use to stabilize the Rubik's Cube and so the edge of the cube pressing into the heel of your thumb where it meets the rest of your thumb um, that could create tendinitis for people who were staying up for days on end just playing with this thing trying <laughs> to, to beat this puzzle it right. was
0: a craze like, like no other I say we take a break okay, uh, and we come back and we talk about uh, Mr. Rubik or maybe he's a doctor I'm going to call him Dr. Rubik, okay. and how he created the mechanics of this puzzle. All right, so supposedly, uh, Doctor Rubik, surely he's a doctor.
2: I would <laughs> let's call him Professor Rubik because he was definitely an architecture professor and a math genius. Surely, okay. though, I'm I'm with you. he's got to be a doctor.
0: All right, Professor Doctor Rubik uh, supposedly was not even trying to create this puzzle in 1980. I'm sorry, 74 when he first started out. Uh-huh. Um, as legend has it, he was trying to create a mathematical model for 3D design class, which makes sense. considering his job. Uh, Other people say, no, he was just really kind of a guy that liked to tinker. He was fascinated by geometry and shapes, and he was trying to just solve a problem of of mechanics in three dimensions. But according to the Toy Hall of Fame, uh, he was very much trying to invent a puzzle, uh, and that may just be folklore.
2: Yeah, he he knew what he wanted. He wanted to make this three-by-three cube that was made up of smaller cubes that could all, like, interact and twist around like he had the idea for the rubik's cube which was step one but step two was a doozy and that was figuring out how to invent a mechanical solution to make this thing work the way he wanted it to and apparently he was um there's a pretty good article on mental floss by a guy named noah davis who recounted that um one day rubik was walking down the danube alongside the danube Uh, in Budapest and looked down and noticed that there was just a a pile of nice polished rounded river rocks and thought I've got it I've been thinking (laughs) about a cube everything's got to be a cube but what if I added a sphere to the mix too and that these things rotated around a sphere that would give the freedom of motion that I need to make this thing work and that was it that 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 was the the solution to the puzzle as it were.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're like me and probably lots of other kids in the early 80s, you took your Rubik's Cube apart at some point.
2: Did you? I never, I never saw one until oh, really? I watched a video on this, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I got a screwdriver out in pretty short order and popped those <laughs> things apart. Uh, and it's kind of cool when you look at the, you know, when you take all those Cubies out, you get down to the center, and those three axes, um, and they have, uh, each one is tipped with two opposing center Cubies. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool looking, and then it makes sense how all these things fit together and how it works. Yeah, a, another way to think about it is
2: just think about like a sphere, a ball, and then you've got six arms sticking out in in um at right angles from it so that it forms a three-dimensional plus sign. Plus sign. And at the end of each one of these arms is a cube, a colored cube, and though that's the skeleton of the thing. And then what what Erno Rubik figured out was that that's all that needed to be attached to the center. You could make the other cubes attached to those those face cubes, those center cubes. Cubies. Cubies. Um, you could make some cubes, cubies attached to those cubies and then other cubies attached to the other cubies and then they will all kind of rotate around each other, but they're all really rotating on three different axes coming out of that sphere. It's a genius. Like this guy has gotten like if he started a craze and is a, a, you know kind of viewed as this great inventor for the toy like math physics uh, architecture um in the in a number of different fields he's viewed mechanical as mechanical
0: engineering for sure
2: yeah he's viewed as just a um a, a god in some senses for for cracking this this problem and creating this three-dimensional structure that actually works in in reality that people can learn and study from
0: that's right. So he's figured out this uh, the mechanics of it all, but it's still not a puzzle yet until he applies these colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what makes it a puzzle because, like we said to, at the beginning, the idea is that you have all the colors on each side matching one another. He applies these colored stickers all over, mixes and twists it up a little bit, and he's like, I've invented the cube. And then he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to solve the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So he actually had built this thing, stickered it up, and looked at it, I imagine, with some level of accomplishment and then realized that the biggest, probably uh, the hardest thing to do in this whole process still lay in front of him, which was because there were no books out at this point. Right, <laughs> He invented it. So he had to figure out how to solve his own puzzle. And it took him a while. It took him a month from what I saw. Yeah. And I imagine he worked on this pretty much nonstop to figure yeah. this thing out he he did and he would like write down like the different
2: different moves combination of moves which now they're called algorithms sure um it's just types of moves that if you do them in a specific sequence will solve a specific jumbled rubik's cube right that's right um so he wrote them down he kind of uh kept track of it and that was like the first the first um First time anyone had a kind of applied analysis to this, but it would not be the last, obviously, as the New York Times bestseller shows. But the the reason why it's so difficult to solve a Rubik's Cube just by happenstance is that just the sheer number of possible configurations of the cube, right? Each face has nine cubies, and there's six Faces. So there's 54 cubies, but they all relate to one another. And so if you move one, that's one configuration. If you move it another direction, that's another configuration, and so on and so on. And so with these 54 cubies, Chuck, are you ready for this? Yes. The possible number of configurations is 43 quintillion, 252 quadrillion, 3 trillion, 274 billion, 489 million. 856,000 possible configurations of a Rubik's Cube. Uh, Amazing. And one of them, one, is the right one, where all six faces are all the same color cubies. Just one. So just doing it accidentally, your chances are one in about 43 trillion that you're going to stumble upon that right combination. That's right. Which is pretty amazing, don't you think? Yes. And by the way, I think I said in there 54... There's 20 cubes. I believe there's 54 faces.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the deal. Each cubey has three sides or mm-hmm. two sides. Right. Depending on if it's a corner or an edge or one if it's in the center. Right. So it's kind of confusing.
2: But but nine times six, so nine, nine squares or nine different colored squares times six faces is 54, I think. Yeah, 54
0: faces, 20... Something cubies, <laughs> right? This is how good at math we are. Man, it's it's really because it's so funny because it's such a simple little thing. But mm-hmm. once you start really breaking it down, you're like, we could make this super confusing if we tried hard, for sure. But what people have figured out is that there there like you may
2: have like a one in forty three quintillion chance of stumbling across the right configuration by accident. But what people have figured out is that there are a combination of moves like you know um, uh, front right up twice and then down. Yeah. That's that's an algorithm and if you apply that to a certain kind of scrambled, a certain configuration of a scrambled Rubik's Cube, it will bring it back to solved. And so people have spent a lot of time developing algorithms. And that's what Erno Rubik was originally doing when he was like, oh, if I do this, this, and this, it will make it solved. And he wrote that down. That's what's called an algorithm.
0: Yeah. And I remember in the book, like each book had their own little shorthand, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I remember the one that I had, uh, it definitely had the algorithms all spelled out with like shorthand for e- what each move was called, mm-hmm. so it would sort of look like a math problem made out of letters,
2: right? Like I saw U for up and D for down. Yeah, which makes like a lot that. of sense. But then also um, you can you know there, you can move something to the right. You can twist one of the rows of cubes to the right, but you can also twist it to the left too. So I saw an apostrophe after like L apostrophe would be counterclockwise left. Oh. And then you can add a number, two, so you do that twice, which is really a 180-degree c- counterclockwise turn. So interesting. It really is kind of interesting. It, like, at first, you know, when I first um, went over this article the first time, just taking it in, I was like, oh, this is pretty neat. But the Rubik's Cube I found has many, many layers to it. And you can really keep going deeply into it, well beyond just playing with the, the cube, uh, in trying to, to solve it, like there's a lot of math involved, there's a lot of physics and mechanics involved. Uh, you, I mean, you can get as sucked into it as you like, buddy. Just try not to go insane like Erno Rubik did. <laughs> he did not <laughs> when he set that that building on fire full of Rubik's cubes.
0: He, uh, it's interesting though how big of a hit this became. Sort of it flew in the face of a lot of, um, like sort of rules of the toy industry, in that. Uh, it didn't make sounds. Um, it didn't have interchangeable parts. It didn't have things that you could sell along with it, like you know, clothing. You couldn't. I guess you could dress your little Rubik's cube, but then <laughs> you have a special relationship with it. I guess so. Right. You could dress it up and be like,
2: "I'm Ruby."
0: Uh, it didn't have batteries. It was never like. Well, I guess it appeared on a TV show. Was that a TV show? Yeah. It was. It was a Saturday morning cartoon that
2: came on right before Pac-Man, which was honestly one of the all-time great cartoons ever.
0: Yeah, it just it wasn't marketable though like you would think a toy would be. The mm-hmm. reason that it appealed and endured is because it is a real challenge and you get a real sense of reward once you've done it. Right. And that and really hooks
2: people. It really does hook people and again there's like not there's no shame in going and looking up algorithms to solve um, Rubik's cubes, like just processes, and in fact, if you start doing any kind of research on Rubik's cubes, you'll find like there's actually specific um, methods of attack that people suggest for for beginners to start with. There's one called the White Cross method, classic, which is um, entails eating a handful of White Cross <laughs> gas station speed, just staying up, and staying until you up finish. for four days until you <laughs> until you get done. No, it's actually you start with the edge pieces. And then you move to the corner pieces, putting them all in place, and then you um, go on from there, starting with the white face of the cube.
0: That's right. And uh, this toy was a big hit anyway, but it uh, it has endured uh, not because of stocking stuffers or uh, nostalgia, Mm -hmm. but it has endured all these years later because of competition. Yeah. So let's take a break now, and we'll talk about speed cubing right after this.
2: Well, now, when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know. All right.
1: Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo.
2: Okay, so the Rubik's Cube comes out in the world basically in nineteen eighty and the next year, the very next year, countries around the world were holding national championships for um solving Rubik's Cubes as fast as you possibly could. It's called speed cubing.
0: Yes, and then a year after that they all got together, all the champions of the countries, for the very first Rubik's Cube world championship in Budapest. Mm-hmm. Which is kinda cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 's what has kept people going for so long because there there's people are still trying to beat these records. I saw a kid, and it 's kind of hard to tell what the top times because they list the top times in these competitions, but I saw a kid on YouTube do it in like six seconds or four or five seconds.
2: I saw one do it in three point four seven
0: yeah i don 't know how like how it 's officially judged though. There's
2: a timer um and one of those there's one of those mats that you keep your hands on. Well no the I get pressure.
0: That. But like why does it say that, that those aren't world records then?
2: I don't know. That's what I saw was the world record was in two thousand eighteen and it was three point four seven seconds by Yu Shang of Yushang du sorry, of China.
0: See, I've seen other things listed. I just don't know if there's like the the bodies aren't speaking to one another or what. <laughs>
2: hmm. Maybe it's that was a um a non-championship uh, time.
0: Uh, and like so, a non-sanctioned event or, or something? Or even,
2: even maybe it was a qualifier or something like that, so it it doesn't count as the world record unless you get whatever time is done at the world championship, that's considered the world record. Who knows?
0: It's crazy to see how fast these kids, and it's usually kids that win, mm. um, I guess with their little nimble fingers and, <laughs> right. and brain sponges. yeah. Uh, it's crazy how fast they're doing it. It doesn't look real. It looks like some sort of weird faked video.
2: Yeah, and here's the other thing, too. I'm glad you mentioned brain sponges because it is like a, um, a an intellectual pursuit like, from the beginning of this this Toys release in 1980, like, they they went a different route. Like, you are saying it, it doesn't require batteries. It was, you know, um, it, do, it doesn't make a noise or anything like that. So, they went a different route in advertising it and said this is a, an intelligent game. Like, um, sure, Isaac Newton discovered gravity, but could he solve a Rubik's Cube, you know? So, they really kind of play that up, and it's true because these kids who are solving, or people, who are solving Rubik's Cubes super fast, it's not just like, or their fingers are just moving for them, they have memorized hundreds, if not thousands, of these algorithms and have gotten to the point where they can look at a cube and figure out which algorithm is going to solve it the fastest. And then when the time starts, they can also move their fingers really, really quick. And that's how they're getting these amazing times. It's not just speed and dexterity. It's also knowing what algorithm is going to work best.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh You know, it it, it died out pretty quickly like most fad toys. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you sell a lot of these, you don't need another one unless you break yours or something. So it's kind of one of those things where – and which is, again, why it flew in the face of the toy industry because they couldn't sell ancillary products alongside it. But, uh, you know, it died out pretty quickly. And the championship uh, in 1982 was the last one for about 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, until the internet comes along. And all of a sudden, there are people posting faster times than ever before than 20 years earlier. And in 2003, um, in Canada, there was a cuber named Dan Gosby who organized uh, a competition in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And this is where they're getting it down to like 20 seconds. And they have different categories like blindfolded, fewest moves, one-handed, feet. Feet. Feet, dude, last year. Someone did it in 23 seconds by foot. Yeah. which was about the quickest time by hand at the first competition.
2: Yes, and it took them longer to figure out that they had solved it than it did to actually solve it because they had to use a stick to turn the Rubik's Cube over because they had used their feet to solve it.
0: <laughs> and I think uh, <laughs> when you participate... <laughs>
2: it didn't pay off as well as I thought it would. Eh,
0: That's all right. Uh, you get 15 seconds to look at the cube over. Mm-hmm um they are all started uh like the cubes are all started the same with a like a computer generated random 25 move scramble which is fair you get that 15 seconds you check it out you set it on your mat and then you you go and it's just like i said it's amazing to see these things done in like sub four seconds
2: yeah, because, they, they're, I mean, their hands actually do kind of blur. Like, you can't really follow where their hands are at any given time. They barely touch the Rubik's Cube. And they're using, to be fair, they're using specialized speed cubes. They're not just using, like, off-the-shelf Rubik's Cubes. Yeah, we'll
0: talk about those. Or should we right. just go ahead and talk about them? It's well, amazing. Well,
2: sure, sure, yeah. So so people go to the trouble of getting a speed cube. It's like, you know, you can get one for – you can get a good one, from what I understand, for about 70 75 bucks. And these things are literally well-oiled machines that are just super fast. Some of them use magnets so that you can tell when they're snapped into place and um, they move a lot more easily and quickly. Um, You can just look at it and be like, that's a high-end Rubik's Cube right there.
0: Yeah, like you can pay to get your cube serviced Mm -hmm. uh, and checked out at Speed Cube Shop. So someone will take it apart, a technician, and they will look at each of those little cubies for defects and, like, has it got a little bump here that will slow it down? They'll smooth that out. Uh, like you said, sometimes they use magnets. Um, and one of the reasons for the magnets is it creates that snap when a turn is completed. Because mm-hmm. if you want to move these things really fast, you don't want it to be, you know, if, even if it's an eighth of an inch out of whack, you're not going to be able to turn it the other way. Right. So you want it to snap and lock into place. Uh, you know, you want... <laughs> It's just amazing how how engineered these things have become yeah. in these speed cubing competitions.
2: Right. Well, I mean, just to keep up, you've got to you've got to get yourself a speed cube. If you showed up like to an actual competition with just a regular Rubik's cube, you'd, I don't know if you'd be laughed out of the place, but they would they would certainly feel bad for you.
0: You know what they should do is like because you know I remember them loosening up really well and getting faster just because you played with it more. Mm-hmm instead of giving everyone speed cubes and trying to get this ultra red bull record which they sponsor the events now by the way yeah. uh they should give everyone like out of the package make it as hard as possible
2: i agree i think that there would be some um you know preteens who are really high strung that would cry if they were <laughs> confronted with that challenge
0: if they had to put their speed
2: cube down yeah they'd be like this is not fair no one prepared me in my life for this <laughs>
0: Uh, I did mention Red Bull because it was kind of controversial. Um, For many years, uh, the Rubik's World Championships uh, were co-hosted by the World Cube Association with the support of the brand. But then, clearly, some money changed hands. Uh, A couple of years ago, there was the Red Bull Rubik's Cube World Championship. Uh, You know, Red Bull got involved. The brand Rubik got involved, which means there was money changing hands. And You're every- really
2: fascinated with that money changing hands, aren't you?
0: Well, I mean, sure, because it was, I think everyone saw it as for what it was, which was sure. all of a sudden there's a corporate sponsor attached to it.
2: Yeah. And that—that that is like a pretty important point because, like, this was, there was already a world championship and it was like a grassroots organization that had grown up since 2003 and they were doing really well. And then all of a sudden, 15 years later, Red Bull comes along attached to the Rubik's brand and is like, out of the way, nerds. This is the real one. Yeah. And so, apparently, um, it was a there was a lot of controversy, like you were saying, but um, now they kind of coexist, and the Red yeah. Bull Rubik's-sponsored one changed their name from World Championship to World Cup <laughs> so that they don't step on each other's feet at all. But if you think about it, that's a pretty big win for this grassroots World Cubing Association to, to be able to keep their original name and not have to change their name, you know? For sure. Hats off to them. Hats off, indeed. So, um one of the uh the the things that i said about the rubik's cube chuck is that it it it's got a lot of layers to it and there's a lot of surprising math involved specifically there is a, a kind of algebra called um group theory and um one of the one of the things that has long kind of fascinated mathematicians is that there is somewhere in there a a number of moves there's an algorithm that has or there's a number of moves associated with any number of algorithms. Man, I'm making this way harder than it actually is. Where it represents the maximum number of moves you would need to use to solve any configuration, any of the 43 quintillion configurations of a Rubik's Cube. And some people figured out that this number must exist. And brother, they got obsessed with it. From 1981 to 2010, some people... Almost set a building full of Rubik's cubes on fire.
0: Yeah, I mean, they really researched this stuff to the point where uh, like computer scientists are looking into this. There was mm-hmm. a guy uh, named Thomas Rakiki um, who got that the upper limit down to 22 moves, and this is like Google is helping him out with the processing power. yeah, so they call it God's algorithm. Uh, I mean, in the case of Rubik's cube, um, they got down to 20. Is where they landed, right? Yeah, but God's algorithm can be used for any puzzle, really. Uh, you know, and it, that is, and why do they call it God's algorithm? It's what, how God would solve the puzzle. So, from what I saw, it's the God's God's number is the the maximum
2: number of moves that God would require to solve any configuration of the puzzle.
0: Right. So they Which call it God's number. Got a little confusing in this article because. It's a bit of a brain trick. It's like the fewest moves, but it's a maximum number of moves.
2: Right, right, exactly. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And then there's actually fewer moves for other algorithms. So I saw God's number is actually probably more like somewhere between 19 and 20. But because there are algorithms out there that have to be done in no less than 20 moves, that's still God's number. And there's also the devil's number I saw, too, What's which that? is the number of moves in an algorithm that it would take to go through all 43-plus quintillion um, configurations before you solved oh, it, which I think that's a pretty good name for that one. Huh. Yeah, now that's the one that they're on the trail of now.
0: But they're done at 20, right?
2: They are, but I think I think it's interesting that that we're not entirely certain— it's not like, okay, this has been proven, it's done. What the reason why they arrived at 20 is because they actually built an algorithm to try to solve these algorithms. Right. They taught an AI basically how to play Rubik's Cube, or they said, here's a Rubik's Cube, go teach yourself. And then they had it play just, just some mind numbing number of different Rubik's Cubes hands trying to solve it. And it kept coming up with 20. And so it came up with 20 enough times that they're like, well, our computer god has told us that 20 right. is the is God's number. So there you have it. But we, no one – it wasn't proven. It wasn't solved. It was right. just like this thing is so, so smart that we're just going to go with 20. So
0: someone's still working on it then probably.
2: I guess. But I think I get the impression that they have moved on to the devil's number. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so as you would imagine with a toy of this caliber, uh, there were bound to be other people – uh, saying they invented it and patent battles would ensue. Mm-hmm. And of course, this was the case with the Rubik's Cube. Uh, in 1977, when uh, Rubik got his Hungarian patent for the Magic Cube, there was another inventor named Larry Nichols who had already patented something very similar in the US. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, this was in 1972, but his was for a, a two by two by two cube, but not a three by three by three. Still, same concept. Sure.
2: And at first he was like, this is this is hilarious. You know, I had the same idea and now it's become a national craze. It's kind of satisfying. And somebody said, do you have any idea how much money you are losing out on right now? You should sue. He said, oh my gosh, you're right. I should sue. And I get the impression that either the company he worked for or the company he sold the patent to really led the charge in suing for this a uh, patent infringement. Um, but he had a pretty good case. I mean, he had invented it and patented it years before. It was just... The number of cubes involved was smaller.
0: Yeah, I mean there was another guy too, a guy named Frank Frank Fox. Uh, I think in '74, mm-hmm. he actually did the three by three by three, mm-hmm. but he let his uh, patent lapse, whereas Nichols did not. And those people, like you were talking about, that he that actually owned Nichols' patent were called uh, Moleculin Research Corporation. That sounds scary. Yeah, and litigious.
2: Yeah, yeah, they do. So th- I want to point out, though, it's definitely worth saying outright, there is no evidence and I don't think anyone's ever leveled an accusation that Erno Rubik stole this idea. It-, it was just arrived at independently. And he was working behind the Iron Curtain at the time, too. So the chances of any exposure are pretty low. It was just some people kind of came up with the same idea at the same time. And Erno Rubik's is the one that hit.
0: That's right. Uh, In 1984, a federal district court ruled in favor of Moleculon. But then in 86, an appeals court overturned that, saying only that two by two by two uh, Rubik's Cube because they started making different variations. Mm -hmm. Um, They made a smaller one that they said infringed. In fact, I remember now I had a little guy on a car key for a short time. Oh, yeah, I remember that, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then in 1989, another appeals court upheld the previous appeals court decision.
2: I should I should say I read an article by that guy uh, Nichols who had the original patent, and they were like you know you I think they were suing for like fifty million or something. And like, were you satisfied with the outcome? He said, "Yeah, I was satisfied." He's like, I, "I got enough to put both of my kids through Harvard, so I'm pretty happy with that." And <laughs> um, you know, like he invented this thing that he was able to to send his kid through Harvard with. You know.
0: Yeah, that's always interesting cool. when someone win something like that but it wasn't like stolen from him. Right. It was just he had the patent first and guess so. they agreed. You know
2: what's, what's even crazier that makes that story just absolutely insane? He had approached Ideal Toys with yeah. that and they had not bought it and then they went on years later to buy um, the the uh, Erno Rubik version.
0: Yeah, they put out a, a bunch of different. They made big ones like the tiny ones I just talked about. I remember I had a snake I did, too, and I had no idea what to do with that. I just played with it like it was a snake.
2: I did the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I just twisted it around and stuff. I still don't know what you were supposed to do with that thing.
0: I think eventually the snake uh, would be put together in some sort of a three-dimensional octagon or something, if I remember. Okay. Or hexagon. Yeah, I was way off. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know how to—I didn't even try to learn. I just kind of played with it. I taught mine to drink water. (laughs) Mine drinks from a cup. (laughs) That's right. That was very Ralph Wiggum. Yeah. Uh, Erno Rubik is still alive and well. He lives in Hungary, mm-hmm. still teaches architecture, uh, I imagine has a boatload of money. So he's founded some uh, multiple foundations yeah, which uh, is for cool. inventors. That's very cool.
2: Yeah. He ha- he has a boatload of money so much so that his success story is considered by some to have been the thing that opened the gates to uh, capitalism in Hungary. Amazing. Um, they also made him the president of the Hungarian Engineering Academy. And he still, I think, shows up once in a while to the World Championships. And maybe the World Cup. I don't know. He doesn't seem like a very controversial type. No. Seems like a good guy. And if you really want to go crazy, if you've solved a ton of Rubik's Cubes, but this has kind of made you nostalgic to try something harder, they make a 13 by 13 by 13 Rubik's Cube. Oh, wow. And there's something else called the Skewb, S-K-E-W-B. And it is, I don't even know what you're supposed to do with it. It's like the snake times a trillion to me. That's right.
0: And there's also a movie called Cube, which is like Saw with math.
2: Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. It
0: has nothing to do with Rubik's Cubes.
2: And there's uh, the Pursuit of Happiness, where Will Smith gets a job as a stockbroker because somebody sees him solve a Rubik's Cube in something like two minutes or less. And apparently, while he was promoting that movie, he solved one in less than a minute himself, in real life.
0: You mean the movie The Pursuit of Hapwiness? Yeah. I Did they explain that in the movie? I'm sure. I never saw it. I just always called it <clears throat>
2: Hapwiness. <clears throat> did you ever see that one where he was, like, super depressed and his, his colleagues at work, like, just gaslight him into thinking he's being visited by angels
0: no I didn't oh. did you see the one where he went uh, he was from West Philadelphia and he went to live with his rich relatives <laughs> yeah I did as Let's a matter of fact he dressed very colorfully mm-hmm. he was uh, I think in Bel Air
2: uh, what was mistaken. it Bel Air I think it was Santa Barbara oh uh, you're right okay Uh, Well, if you want to know more about Will Smith, you can type his name into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said Will Smith, it's time for Listener Mail.
0: I've got a coconut tree correction. Okay. Hey, guys. Correction on something uh, said during the episode, The Cult of the Coconut, when you guys talked about the Kolpovrishka. First of all, it's not pronounced that way. Uh, it is pronounced Kulpa Vrushka. Oh, we were way off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She says uh, Vrushka or Vrishka, depending on transliteration, simply means tree in Sanskrit. Okay. Uh, also, always mispronounced by people in the West, by the way. Oh, uh, well, I don't feel that bad. Yeah, exactly. Correct pronunciation is uh, Sanskrit. No, she's saying Sanskrit is always mispronounced. Oh, oh, I see. So it's
2: Sanskrit.
0: Sounds croot. That sounds like that, a French person. Saying. As best I can convey is what she says.
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I've always said Sanskrit.
0: This person is a real, uh, really into words though, and very okay. smart. Okay. Uh, second, the coconut tree is just one of the trees considered a. Uh, how do you pronounce it again? Kolpuk Scrufka. Uh huh. There you go. You nailed it. <laughs> Not because it is all you need to survive, though but because every single part of the coconut tree is useful to humans. Oh, yeah. Uh, The bark, the leaves, the fibers, and, of course, the coconuts in their entirety. Uh, This concept is tied closely with why uh, Indians culturally revere certain animals, uh, e.g. cow, and plants and trees, e.g. banyan and coconut. Okay. I've noticed on the podcast how you two often go out of your way to correctly pronounce words or names in foreign languages like German. We thought we were. (laughs) Which is something I appreciate as a bicultural, uh, pentilingual individual. Wow. Perhaps you could expand your efforts to include not just Western languages, but Eastern languages, too. After all, Sanskrit belongs to the same language group as German, if you think about it. I think it would be true to the spirit of your show, guys. Keep up the good work. And that is from Ruta, R-U-T-A. did Ruda
2: say, did she sign off with later lamos? <laughs> no. Thanks a lot, Ruda. Yeah, it's not like we're like, oh, we'll only go to the trouble of pronouncing something in German or French, which, by the way, we don't very often. And we thought we were pronouncing it yeah. correctly That's right. in the Eastern languages. So sorry, Ruda. I didn't know it was Sanskrit. It was I had no script. idea. Not just us, Chuck. Like a million people just learned that. Uh, yeah. Close to a million. I agree. Uh, well thanks a lot again, Ruda. And if you want to get in touch with us like Ruda did, you can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links, or you can send us a good old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why, with your Discover card, you'll have access to 24-7 live customer service as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply.